I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. Ladies and gentlemen, no particular year, no particular album, no particular artist. The reason for that is I have David Osman speaking with me today of the Firesign Theater. David, thank you so much for speaking with me. <laughs> Sorry, I seem to be coming down to something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great to be here. It really is. Oh my God, the both of you, both you and Phil, you'll never telegraph that a bit is coming. That's This is the thing. I don't expect it. I should have, but I didn't. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Well, here we are. We're potting along uh, in the we world of, of LPs. We just have an L, a double LP out. Uh, it, it, it is truly exciting because the format is so beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. I haven't put a needle on it yet, but I have no doubt that the tracks are as beautiful as they used to be before CDs destroyed <laughs> our hearing. <laughs> Do you, what, my God, how long has this actually been since you've had a vinyl release? This is the first vinyl release in, I mean, well, maybe the since, 80s, right? Yeah, it's since the, the uh, I think there was a group of three albums that Rhino, very early Rhino brought out. Okay. And, uh, and one of those, the the best known is uh, the Fighting Clowns album. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> and that had um, a seven inch, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which was supposed to be a promotional for the album. Oh, so that's that, a picture disc, right? Yeah, it was a oh, picture disc. And then, I have one I somewhere. There, there were two more. I, and then there were two more after that um, uh, um, that just sneak snuck out under oh uh, one of the uh, shakespeare's lost comedy oh okay it was printed that time it was just uh, 81 80 81 something like that mm -hmm. they were the last of the breed yeah and of course like stand up uh an independent label with an, an enthusiast or more than one enthusiast oh, yeah. behind it oh yeah really important I mean, this podcast, honestly, uh, this is not me kissing any butt. Uh, it wouldn't still be going, probably, and it wouldn't sound this good if it wasn't for Dan Schlissel at Stand Up. So, you know, I'm, I'm just happy that it finally came together with, like, Firesign. I'm just glad that he finally, because I know he's been waiting to release something of Firesigns, and I'm just so glad that, that, that it happened. Um, uh, as I was telling you before we started, I have mine sitting in the living room. And ladies and gentlemen, I am overly cautious. So in seven days, I think I can open it just to be safe, you know, that I didn't get any crazy diseases. The last thing I want is to get COVID from a fire sign record, although it would be poetic, weirdly you poetic. Beat, in the year of Beat the Reaper, yes, it's mm -hmm. certainly uh, <laughs> something poetic. I don't know whether it'd be poetic. <laughs> so <clears throat> since you and I, we're both coughing, by the way. We'll both clear <clears throat> our throats at that. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Terrible thought. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have we have only spoken briefly a few times in person. This is our first time, really. So I want to know, uh, since I've interviewed Phil countless times, why don't we start with everything he got wrong? Uh, why don't you? <laughs> no, but I want to know from your perspective. I want to know a bit, a little bit about uh, what it was like getting started in Firesign from the beginning for you. And I also want to know the early records you listened to before you were ever in comedy. Yeah, well, I, Phil tells, of course, his great story about sitting on Bergman's face in the newspaper <laughs> during the Sunset Strip riots. And it is a great story. and It's true, which, is, which makes it even better. Right. Um, for me, it was out of um, many years by this time, six, almost seven years of doing radio broadcasting. So Peter came along. Uh, when I had just dropped out of KPFK and had gone to work for ABC television mm -hmm. in an assistant to the vice president in charge of programming 
uh, at ABC <laughs> Television Network. Mm -hmm. um, I, it was a job I really, I, there was no way I could improve on anything. It was mm -hmm. the year of Batman. Wham, bam, wow. whack. And that was the best they had to offer, really. Mm. And there was no way, you know, I, I wasn't an experienced enough writer and certainly not a screen or television writer. So I could go in and say, oh, well, let me fix this script up for you. But I could tell a bad script when I read one. Sure, that sure. I knew. And uh, so coming uh, out of, or off that and going back to KPFK during a fundraiser, and mm -hmm. being on the air with Phil Austin, we were a great partnership on the radio, raised a lot of money. Uh, Peter came in next door, got a radio program. I became a fan of his. And uh, the, the, the Phil uh, Proctor story comes way down the line after we'd done a lot of playing together. Uh, uh, Phil in particular, because he was producing. And, uh, and for me, it was like a driveway show. I had to, I had to stop and listen. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh, and so I would end up in the studio hanging out because it was two hours, three hours, four hours, however long it was in the middle of the night. And uh, uh, it, it was like magic. I, I have to say, when Proctor did arrive, it was very magical. Yeah. Uh, it, the the group became a group, did coalesce. Peter called us a group. We had an identity right from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and but that didn't mean that we necessarily had any work or a job or, <laughs> you know, or, or a record contract or anything else. But there was this groupness about it. If you put yourself back in the late 60s, uh, groups were that was it. Groups were everything. Mm -hmm. And we were un. Uh, we were a absolutely the same as um, as a, a, a rock quartet. Mm -hmm. There, were, the company didn't know. Columbia Records had no idea. Mm -hmm. Just sell records, you know. Doesn't matter. Red beans and reds, you know. Mm -hmm. Whoever who is go out there and sell <laughs> records. Dope humor of the seventies, you know. Yeah. That was the one thing you couldn't do, of course. Sure. Uh, <laughs> at least, not so they could tell you were doing it. Yeah. We did famous commercials for uh, <clears throat> real product, uh, uh, instant breakfast, mm -hmm. take home carnation. Mm -hmm. And our, our, our slogan was, <laughs> yeah, was remember THC, take home carnation. <laughs> and we had a whole little campaign built on that. Nobody knew until somebody fell off a chair someplace and said, wait, 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 wait a minute. You realize what these guys are doing. <laughs> So there, there was, in in a sense, there was a lot of dope humor because it was a signal. Yeah, it was a signal between friends. It was a, it was a kind of a, it was an oral handshake, if you like. Yeah, and uh, um, so it, it's remarkable to me. The other thing about this, about the album, is that who would have thought that you'd do a commercial? for an album that wasn't going to be released for 50 years. <laughs> uh, ponder that one. And what did I listen to? You know, I, um, I, I listened to a lot of, uh, of radio in, during the classic era of radio. Mm -hmm. um, I think when albums came out, there were, it, it was, who did I, you know, albums reproduced work that you heard in other places sure so i remember when that first lord buckley album came out mm -hmm. electra i think it was right and and that that was you know that was like oh i never heard any i mean i've heard bits and pieces but mm -hmm. i never heard an lp 
of the work before. And yeah. that was a game changer, I think. Uh, he, uh, uh, I've done a couple of his things, not not being him, but because mm -hmm. they're so good. Uh, the the Raven, you know, uh -huh. the, the Bug Boy, <laughs> and it it just gorgeous word smithing on his part. Yeah, and and I and I, I never saw him in person, but I guess that's who he always was, was Lord Buckley. So that way, that was and the early Nichols and May albums particularly that improvisation to music album which yeah uh, how could you not learn something mm -hmm. from listening you know as an actor just as an actor mm -hmm. uh very valuable from two people who turned out to be incredible directors actors and you know who knew you know where they would go um and there's the one isn't there the one isn't that the album that has the one where they fall apart laughing Finally, I think so. Yeah, yeah. If I'm not mistaken. They only yeah. have a few al and albums. But... That's and that's another um, that that moment could be uh, kept and done specifically for vinyl, not mm -hmm. for radio, not and it wasn't a capture from some other medium. It was done for vinyl. They were sitting in the studio across from each other, and so that was really an inspiring as 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 albums go and. Um, what else? Stan Freeberg, of course, I listened sure. to him from the singles era, from uh, the 50s when I was in high school. Uh, and uh, ultimately, you know, the his uh, uh, long form, uh, what is he, United States of America? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when I met him to do an interview with him, he, he was, first of all, just tell me you owe everything to me. <laughs> And I said, Stan, we owe everything to you. <laughs> and in a way, he was the last, uh, last radio artist, last golden age radio artist. He picked up from Jack Benny, and, and radio was gone right out of his mm -hmm. hands. But he was doing real radio, real well, with really good people in at that uh, moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and his work in the studio, his talent in the studio, the production. Uh, I think you can probably, it's pretty close to the production of side one of Electrician. Uh-huh, Be right. Because no one, uh, G Jimmy Gorsio and anybody else associated with that album production, what else did they have to listen to? You right. know, let's bring in the band and have them go, da 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 Thank you, Bridge. You know, what else? As I say, I... The, I think the first LP that I really could laugh my way all the way through was uh, Noel and Gertie, the Noel Coward album that uh, kept uh, parts of uh, both in both songs, but also scripts from uh, uh, Coward's comedies, Private Lives, with this mm -hmm. very crisp, intense dialogue. Yeah. Just wonderful, wonderfully funny stuff. Uh, I've always been a fond of, of the British kind of music hall sense. Sure. Uh, I, I, I don't, you know, it, that didn't invest us like it that did Paul McCartney, who came right out of that. But I think our equivalent of that was the, the medicine show, mm -hmm. was the traveling medicine show, which is one of our identities. One of our character identities was being those guys yeah. traveling the plains with, with our lonely buffalo. <laughs> and entertaining people. Were so, you a performer as a kid? Were you, because it sounds like, just the way you describe getting in Firesign is just very like, oh, I was there, but I, I, I don't get a sense of like, 
were you in theater as a kid? Were you interested in comedy, or was it and was it a passing interest, or were you actively writing? Stuff? As a as a kid, I was a writer. I mean, if we okay. take if we go back to uh, let's say you know high school, mm -hmm. um, I I was one of the writers. I was editor of the school newspaper, which was a daily. No, um, okay, uh, I I was in uh, I was in my senior year of uh, thank you, dear. In my senior year of high school, I edited the newspaper. Okay. So I wasn't in the senior play. I was in the play before that. That was the first time I did any real stage acting. Mm -hmm. I was drawn to it. I had gone to, a, by the time I was a senior in high school, I'd seen a lot of theater, mostly musicals, but also a lot of Shakespeare, everything that was in town that I could see. And, you, you know, I had a season ticket to the Civic Light Opera or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I saw everything, really devoured theater. So I had a lot of, of that in my mind. Uh, of the, and that's shows of uh, basically of the 40s and mm -hmm. Shakespeare, you know. Um, so did I want to become an actor? I went to, when I went to college, I'll, then I, I tried out for theater and I got on stage for two, in two years at Pomona. Mm -hmm. uh, I did uh, half a dozen shows with Richard Chamberlain, who was in the year ahead of me at, at Pomona. Wow. Uh, and there, and, and, and others, uh, Anthony Zerby was also there during that time, a character actor and uh, uh, Bob Town, Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown, sure. behind that whole story. Uh, he also was at Pomona then. It was a very interesting time. And after they all graduated, I didn't want to be there anymore because <laughs> it was like, you know, what? Science classes and economics too. And I, <laughs> no. So I went to New York to uh, Columbia, to the School of Drama, which really didn't exist at Columbia University and spent two years there and really um, uh, didn't know where to go after that. Um, maybe tried out for a couple of uh, summer theaters. No, mm -hmm. uh, you know, had a job at Newsweek as an editorial assistant, makeup assistant. Uh, mm -hmm. mm, no. <laughs> and the phone rang and it was, would you like a summer vacation? We have a summer vacation job as a radio announcer. Are you interested in trying out? So I have to say, man, the door opened mm -hmm. just like that. Right place, right time, 1959, Manhattan, mm -hmm. 30 East, 39th Street. And I don't know what kind of a listenership we had, but it was, you know, one of the only FM stations in New York. And oh, if you sure. were into FM, mm -hmm. you know, you had it on. I'd say hundred thousand, couple of hundred thousand listeners here, here and there. Very uh, eclectic programming. Um, mm -hmm. Once it was given to the Pacifica, it, oh, shush, I have a cat here. <laughs> I have such a noisy cat. <laughs> um, it was, I was there when it was a commercial station. And then after about nine months, it was given to the Pacifica Foundation, which mm -hmm. owned KPFA and KPFK mm -hmm. on the, in California. And um, we didn't, it, we, we changed, I would say, not to be more radical like the Berkeley station was, but to be more, but to be closer to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, be, to take, a, a, so WNYC wasn't the only thing. So yeah. we had, we had uh, a theater critic, 
We had movie critics. We had all the, all the regular stuff. I mean, I remember yeah. the guy coming in after the show and typing his thing. It was like Citizen Kane. <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and we had commentators who were, you know, very interesting. I mean, Alan Watts would come in. Alan wow. Watts, the yeah. great philosopher, would come in with his thin cigar. He would sit down at the table, talk incredibly well, so your eyes would be like this. <sighs> And then he'd get up and walk out after his 28 <laughs> minutes of broadcasting. Amazing. He was. Yeah, it was just amazing people that came in and out. That was New York. What station and was this? WBAI. It was W. Okay, I was going to say. That's yeah. exactly what it sounded like. Okay. But, yeah, but it was, uh, it was uh, way, it was the first articulation of that, of that station. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which went through many, 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 many changes over the years. And we're still friendly to there. I think actually, I think in a week we're doing a broadcast on WBAI. Oh, wonderful. And Phil Proctor is going to see, I think he's going on Friday to do a weekend uh, pitch for KPFK. So here, after wow. all of these years, wow. we're still raising money for non-commercial radio, which Holy is a good cow. thing. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Did you... Oh, I, I was going to ask, like, did you go by a different name? But I guess at that station, you could have just gone by David Osman. Yeah, I was uh, I, I was Dave for a long time. The only okay. person who calls me Dave anymore is Phil Proctor. Fair. Fair I enough. mean, it's like your mom or your brother. He's like, a, <laughs> my brother calls me Dave. It's so weird. Every I've been doing all these different, obviously, I do interviews, uh, but also research of different comedians. WBAI is this cross street of so many people I'm fascinated with. And uh, what's interesting is it's still a tough nut to crack because I still can't get a hold of any of the recordings of any of the stuff I really want to hear. Like specifically now, if there are recordings of your early days, I would love to hear those. But it's the kind of thing. It's again tough nut to crack because it's, it's yes, you know, a lot of stuff. Um, well, historically, uh, because the stations were so poor. Mm-hmm. They recycled their tape. Makes sense. Now, this isn't to say that uh, the uh, this the greatest, biggest uh, network stations recycled their tape. I mean, it sure. wasn't sure. So, but but it was an economic decision, and I I that had to end because uh, it was important to keep certain programs after yeah. after a while. And when I was in L.A. by that time, I established the archive that now really exists. There really is a big wow. Uh, uh, archive for all of the remaining Pacifica programs. That's amazing. But I took mine home. To be perfectly honest, I felt Smart. I was uh, any program that I produced, and the major one I did was called the Sullen Art, which was interviews with uh, then young uh, upcoming poets mm-hmm. uh, in the in the uh, New York, particularly in the Lower East Side, New York scene, Ginsburg and that and that sure. basic company of of writers. Uh, Amiri Baraka, Paul uh, Blackburn, uh, a, a whole group of about 50. Those were my interviews, and I kept them and saved them and made a book out of them, which was oh, one of the very man. earliest books to come out of, of um, any Pacifica programming. Uh, okay, so after you're in radio... That, that becomes your outlet. Sounds like that's your creative outlet, but it also has, you know, there's... Is there any comedy to it, or do you do you did you need comedy? Did you think yet? There- well, I think by way of uh, working at WBAI, there was no real comedy a- as such at that time. What there was was folk music, right? Sure. And um, I, I I didn't produce I. In, when I got to Los Angeles, I produced a folk music called Hal's Hoot, you know, weekly. 
hoot show where people would come in and play their various songs. So the Chambers Brothers made their first appearance on that show. Wow, that's, okay. That's the only distinguishing mark <laughs> I can make for it. Um, uh, but no, I was basically a young poet. Mm -hmm. And my interest when, uh, in, let's say, around the age of 25, when I learned how to produce uh, for, for radio, basically no, nobody knew anything. You had to learn it all from the BBC. Mm -hmm. There was no model. <clears throat> for what we we uh, pioneers had to learn how to do, um, which is not just to be broadcasters, but to be producers, editors, announcers, narrators, and everything else there for a while. So, um, the 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 luck of being in New York gave me the opportunity to produce the first documentary that I ever did. I'm I'm 24 now. This is my first radio documentary, and it's about poetry. Uh, not about comedians, not, not anywhere near there. Uh, when I, when I moved back to, uh, Los Angeles then and became drama and literature director, um, let's look at the, at, at the comedy scene. By that time, it was the rise of the standup. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that, that, that only went as far as it went with me. As I, as I say, the, the people who interested me, like Lord Buckley, the people who uh, were surreal and went beyond uh, reading the newspaper, God bless them. It was important that they did that, sit yeah. on the stool and read the newspaper. But uh, um, that's, that's, only, that's one style. What I wanted to go toward back to radio theater yeah. And tried to take the station in that direction, being a literature and drama director. Um, I produced, you know, narrated books. I did, you know, a, a piece about Thoreau that had uh, Charles Ives music under it and, and, and a Hollywood actor, uh, Ross Martin, I think it was, okay. doing the Thoreau narration. Uh, beautiful, heartbreakingly gorgeous Americana of course, kind of, of thing. You know, it was historical uh, programs. I did uh, some public affairs. I did a show called Brecht in Hollywood, which was a portrait of Bertolt Brecht during his few years in Hollywood uh, 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 working on Galileo uh, mm. with Charles Lawton. Uh, we, we, a significant time in his in his life. We did interviews with uh, Elsa Lanchester and yes. and others. And uh, it's a, a <clears throat> wonderful show, which I just adapted into a little four-person uh, radio play. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a Zoom play, a stage <laughs> play, or whatever we're going to ever do again, whenever we do anything ever again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it was literature and drama. Okay. When did comedy enter that? Not until comedy became something that people were broadly interested in from a satiric point of view. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that began to happen when underground radio <clears throat> began to happen. Okay. Because otherwise, it was basically it, it was all top forty. It was all genre. Okay, mm -hmm. breaking genre in radio where it gone, it, it was just not there. It didn't happen until suddenly it did because there was a listenership of kids who who said, "Yeah, give me give me the top forty. I'm happy to to hear that." But is there anything else to listen to? <laughs> and suddenly there was the Beatles, and suddenly there were cuts that were seven minutes long, and suddenly the there was the Doors, and you had to play. It was twenty two minutes long. <laughs> what were you gonna do? You know, you're going to say to your audience, we're not going to give you what you want. Right. No. 
that <laughs> that was not going to happen. So during the period of time that we did the Dear Friends and Let's Eat shows from which this album, Dope Humor of the 70s, is taken, there was pretty much as much freedom of the air for comedy as there ever could possibly have been. And at that time, that's when uh, Harry Shearer got his start with the uh, the credibility gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a number of people working on KPFK. I set up a, um, a series called um, uh, Late and Live. I mm-hmm. wanted five nights a week, 11 o'clock, we're on the air live with something, you know. And... Uh, and some of the shows were just terrific. They were just out from outer space. I'm trying to remember. Oh, he just passed away a few years ago. And I tried to think of his name with a funny kind of a fat guy, kind of a round mm-hmm. fat guy, Marshall Efren. Okay. Okay. Marshall Efren. Mm-hmm. He did a show where he would just count, the, identify the traffic coming down Ventura Boulevard. That is a dark blue 1967 Dodge van. <laughs> And he'd do it car after car and never miss. <laughs> that was the parking lot where they built a, a tower of uh, television sets and, and blew them up. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Late and live. Oh, you know, and wow. I, I do documentaries. By that time, Mr. Skillful is doing documentaries live. <laughs> real A, real B, real C, live narration, go A, go B, which was good because when I got to NPR in 1981, that's exactly the way we produced. Wow. If you, if you, have, if you have union engineers and you're producing, you have everything arranged on separate 10-inch reels, Track by track by track, usually an A roll, B roll, sometimes a C roll, whatever it was, and you call it, and they do it, you know. Oh, and geez. roll A, we're going to go to B in two, three, one, go. You know, it was something. Wow. It was intense production. Yeah, loved it. Yeah, I have to say, loved it. You know, uh, don't don't. Re- re- I mean, I I like. Um, uh, digital editing but not doing it personally but i like watching it i get what the waveforms are and i that's easy sure. for me <clears throat> but just being physically there and uh it's real you know mm-hmm. it's like the it's like a 12 inch record it's real you know here's the cd of it well it's not real is it no <laughs> yeah, i love the cds they've made to look like records they're so hopelessly pathetic <laughs> like imitating 45 right Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, if you're going to go for the nostalgia of the record, just make a record. <laughs> if that's your goal, just make a damn record. I know it's expensive as hell and there's no profit in it, but you know what? They look nice. I'm desperate to have my own. I know it's going to cost me an ass load of money, but I'm desperate to have my own. Well, you know, the uh, uh, Barnes & Noble mm-hmm. published an ad. It must have come up on, on you know, one of my f- feeds New York Times or something. Anyway, Barnes and Noble pops up and it's the weekend LP sale. Mm-hmm. 20% off of LPs plus, you know, a low price on a on a record player. Uh-huh. I thought, well, this is Barnes and Noble. They're clearing <laughs> some table to make space for this. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. And people are listening more and more. We have people's ears. Between uh dope humor. And the uh, uh, free just a dollar, whatever you want to pay downloads that are on Bandcamp, Mm -hmm. there are about three and a half hours of short form fire sign humor available almost literally for nothing. It's crazy. Right at the present. 
And that's, that's you know, that actually, I, I wrote, uh, or, you know, questioned Taylor. I said, what have we got here? Is it about three and a half hours? And that's all selected from, you know, material that presumably is still alive today. Mm-hmm. More, more, more alive than a lot of other things are that are 50 years old. Sure. You know, it's so I'm getting the impression then that at the time, and maybe still, comedy's got to be very specific for you, very hard hitting in some certain way for you to even give a shit. That's what it sounds like. And that's what got you so interested in Peter <clears throat> and everybody else. Yes. The fact that we were really on the moment with the very first album and everybody was in the same place writing uh, this really, really funny stuff and, and making each other laugh. That that was what yeah. was really important at that time. Um I, I think the, my focus was for the best and most interesting possible production values. And as we moved on, we it, things got richer and richer in terms of their production. Yeah. Uh, we And we were all behind that. Um, that certainly, it was, it was make radio realer than radio, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, and the other thing is at the time of doing How Time Flies in 1973, along with uh, Procter and Bergman's TV or Not TV and Austin's Roller Maidens from Outer Space. Mm -hmm. This was a moment when the form of the LP record was as potent as any other media form there was. Here, take home this comic play, this adventure story, this flight to the moon on Gossamer Wings. Take it home. Listen to it. Tired of listening to it? Didn't understand a word you heard? (laughs) play it again it was a beautiful form and uh a media it was a a medium and when they took it away from us it was just like taking marble away from michelangelo i'll tell you it it really felt that that bad like you really in your head you're not making an album you're making a record physically this is the thing you want to make you want to see this round piece of vinyl and that's how you want it played well, that was the ultimate, yeah, that was the ultimate form. To, yeah. not, to not have that, um, well, first of all, it meant that, you know, nobody had access to what you were doing. And sure. then, uh, you know, that, remember that it was cassettes, you know, there were endless cassettes, eight tracks. It was like, it was like the government uh, dissolving in front of your face. <laughs> there were all of these media, none of them were any good. You know, all yeah. of them were, you know, we'll put out three of the, I have a reel to reel of dear friends. Mm-hmm. I got it at a, at a, at a tag sale in Vermont. Now, how did it get there? Well, you know, I mean, it's just the weirdest stuff. So I think all of the, 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 that mix of media, when they went away from the LP toward and, and heading toward, but not getting to CDs yet. We had to go through this horrible transition point. Yeah. I have two favorite, uh, cassettes they're this big you know cassettes are just this big, sure. that, that big one of them is death of a salesman with the original broadway cast wow okay <laughs> on a cassette wow and the other one is uh, dylan thomas's under milkwood with a complete dra- dramatic cast wow i thought what i and i found them separately of course but when mm-hmm. i found each one it was like are you kidding <laughs> you know what a, this can you can you imagine putting this on this tiny little tape? And maybe that's the only thing they'll ever be uh-huh. of that production, you know? So 
we had to go through that period of time. But you say, yes, I felt that the form of the LP record was was viable in every way as a storytelling form, as an art uh, art, art medium of all kinds. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and if I pushed inside Firesign for anything more than anyone else, it was probably form. Okay. Okay. I, I, and I appreciate that, that, you know, it is one of the central things about this show. You know, some people ask, is this, I don't know that anybody's ever asked this outright, but like, is this just a nostalgia show? Is the impression you get people might think it's not really, it is legitimately, and it's not even the sound of it. It is literally the form of it. And the fact that you can, the limitations that you get to then play with, you know, you've got lock loops, you've got Python did the two tracks, uh, the two grooves on the one side of a record. The oh, ways so, you can play I with so it. Weird. Yeah, I so wished we'd done that. It was so good, <laughs> so is. good. I mean, you know, but you couldn't copy it, right? I mean, you couldn't, you, you know, you, they'd done it. That was it. Um, uh, yeah, that that is the the uh, uh, what was I thinking? The gadgets or the 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 gimmicks um, could be so rich in the in the in in the LP form. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're talking about here. You you have one behind you. It has a hole in mm -hmm. the middle. Okay. You're producing for an album. Your needle is facing the hole. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it's going to get to a place where it's going to fall through the hole <laughs> and have to appear on the other side. I can't tell you how in every LP album we did, mm -hmm. we faced the problem, one, of revolution, two, of the hole in the middle, and the two <laughs> sides. It gave you something that you had to, like, um, um, there is no art without limitation uh, of the form, Raymond yeah. Chandler. There's no art without limitation. You have to deal with it that way. If you're going to write a sonnet, it better be a good one. It better fit the right number of lines, syllables, and spaces. Yeah. So, so to me, yeah, I was very intentional about the form and continuing the form. And when when we got a chance to do the longer form pieces um, that might have been albums, Joey's House, for mm -hmm. example, which we did at uh, uh, as one of the uh, Roxy shows, mm -hmm. that would have been that bare bones script, which you can read in uh, uh, Fighting Clowns of Hollywood. You can read the script, mm -hmm. but as I say there, you know, we we never did the script. The script was where the show would start from, yeah, and and it's impossible to preserve even some of the ad libs listen to the show which is available yeah, yeah. on this other media which will deliver you you know the the performance of it uh but that, that's that's a very good way to we all i reflect back on the marx brothers who played uh, uh their shows live before an audience before they filmed them yeah uh and one of the places they played was the lobero theater in santa barbara and when we played that stage it was like ah Come We're on. here with the Marx Brothers. You oh, know? that's amazing! But that's very much the way that those show. Though we would work material up to get it ready to the next thing. Uh, the, Mar the Martian Space Party is a similar workup of material that didn't become an album, but almost became one. What was your okay? So this is the thing that is often assumed that uh, you need heavy training to be an improviser. Did you just step in? Was this just something that came easy? Well, not easy, but came to you. 
improvising? Uh, came easy. Came easy. No, I think the best training you can get in improvisation is not to pay one of those guys on Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> but to volunteer for the Renaissance Fair. There you go. Right. Okay. Where you are speaking in a foreign language uh -huh. eight hours a day, answering random questions and never getting out of character. I'll tell you, that was great training for me from the very, I was at the very first Renaissance Fair and followed that all during its first years. And uh, it was exhausting. Yeah. To, to, it was just exhausting. You'd have to go back into the tent and have, you know, a big glass of wine. And say, oh, well, I'm going to go out there and do it again. Yes, madam. <laughs> you know, uh, great training in improvisation. Wow. Being up against three other guys, all of whom are talking at the same time, <laughs> teaches you to be quiet. <laughs> and that which is an equally important lesson in improv. The other thing about I improv is that all writing is improvisation. Yep. So it, it's just fixed. And so what we improvised around the table as writers and would fix the text. Uh, and then we would take the text, this is, this is modern art terms, <laughs> take the text into the studio and we would work then it into character. And, he, and uh, you know, it didn't matter what we'd argued about writing so long as the the voices, the character, the intention, all this stuff that actors do, but they, but they do it in Hamlet, you know? We mm -hmm. were doing these very short forms at, at, with uh, the intention of making you believe everything that we were saying. Yeah, and that that is that is the, I guess, the essential form of acting then, as long as you keep it within this, within this realm. It's nebulous, but you keep it within this believable realm, you've done your job. Yeah, it's the suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. And oh, the man. that that's what's really funny about uh the <clears throat> the breaking up uh, uh on on that on on that album is that it it breaks the fourth wall. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. And there's something we also love that. Yep. We love yep. when Jack when uh, Bob Hope turns to the camera and goes <laughs> you know, <laughs> makes a face. Yeah. It's funny that you can do that. You can break yourself out of what what we've put you into, and uh, and I think one of the fun funny things about uh, radio is that we could uh, bring in the, the those kinds of characters and just move from one to another to another without any any pause. Yeah. The, our great invention was the channel switch. Mm -hmm. The channel switch <laughs> kept us from ever having to write the end of anything. <laughs> You know, go, bid, bid the cannons shoot. No, we never had to write that. <laughs> Speaking of which, that that was, I think, the last album <clears throat> was uh, uh, Anything You Want To, the so-called lost uh, oh, Shakespeare yeah. comedy yeah. Uh, from Rhino. I think that was the last LP, and it was abbreviated because it was an LP. The original was for National Public Radio. Oh. And, uh, and the form of the original was that it was happening on... In, in national public radio, but in the nation of Hawk Flem, Flem being a uh, a country divided into uh, uh, a, a, the communist part of of Flem on one side of the city and and uh, the western part of one. You know the 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 happy go go lucky nation where everybody's spending a lot of money gambling. You guys didn't stop. This is the thing. We Not just never didn't did. stop making stuff. You didn't stop trying to find ways to just fuck with the entire format of it, which is the beauty of it to me. It's it's one of those things. I talked with my best friend about um, everything you know is wrong and realized 
halfway into it, shit, I've actually never heard it. And then real, then we were talking about it, and I thought I had grown up with him trying to play me one, and I didn't get it, and I didn't discover it until my adult years. And he said, no, it was this record, you idiot. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so it is one of those things where once you, once my brain finally latched onto it and realized all the chances you guys were taking, and not just chances, but just like, no, let's not throw everything out, but do a little bit of something new. Maybe let's write the first hacker character in pop culture history. Let's just do that, for instance. It's just crazy that these things would. You're just like, no, has it? Was it a has this been done or isn't this interesting? And it's great that it turns out it hasn't been done before. Well, no, nothing had been done before. And, <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, in in that sense, yeah. And I don't think that anybody had previously come up. Where does where does the old actor retired in his home up in the Hollywood Hills watching him his old movies on television come from? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 a that's that's a novel. That's a whole history. And mm-hmm. and and so George Tyrebiter became a real character with a real history mm-hmm. because he was worth it coming out of of this uh, 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 Arthur Millerish situation yeah. on that album, you know, uh, the the, uh, the 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 love for, for the characters, with even for the cartoon characters, uh, Danger <laughs> and the Danger Family, you know, uh, everybody just adored those characters and loved seeing us do uh, do them on the stage. And uh, Austin was at his most magnificent. <laughs> doing danger on stage because he had the audience in in the palm of his hand at all times just brilliant and so that that was another uh in terms of improvisation that was another thing that we learned to do is is be completely loose with us on stage yeah and and if something happens um i remember once phil lost his his uh, uh contact lens and he lost it on stage and was looking for it. We didn't know whether he had actually lost his contact lens. <laughs> of course. Or whether the actor he was playing had <laughs> lost his contact lens. But needless to say, we wrote it in. It was incredibly funny. Because yeah. he's doing it was in an, it was in the Shakespeare piece, you know, and he's doing this thing and then suddenly Oh shit. <laughs> he's down on the floor looking for just stuff like that that would happen on stage. We'd never get to an album, mm-hmm. you know, but it would stuff in between the lines that you had already recorded that would send it somewhere else. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so, that is so beautiful. Was it a natural thing? Did you all have an idea? Okay, yes, improv to writing is the way to go. Uh, or did you discover that as a process? Uh, well, it's the... We only existed as writers. Mm-hmm. The Firesign Theater didn't exist unless it was writing together. Yeah, fair. So <clears throat> um, that's why I think it's so important to preserve our writing after uh, after all of these years, instead of just the sound of us in in your ears, is because that that is absolutely true. If we were together, we were creatively, we were writing. Whether yeah. it was in a studio or with a typewriter, or even doing interviews or whatever it was, we were writing basically. And uh, if we weren't, there were so many things that could capture all of our attention. Mm-hmm. You know, Phil Proctor had an entire 
film career going on. Yeah. Peter Bergman was in at least three places at once and complicated places at that, you know, mm -hmm. medical equipment and, 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 and uh, it's an, an Apple master and all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. So it was, um, you, you had to let it, we had to let go into our own lives but we knew that it, we didn't just come back to sit around. We came back to sit down and write something. Mm -hmm. That was the job. And uh, um, as I've described it to people who say, how did you do that? It was like, you know now how, how television comedy is written mm -hmm. by a group of people who sit in a room and they write all the lines together. It was like that, mm -hmm. you know? Because uh, I think that's the only model. There is, there is no other real model for collective writing. Other yep. than the, the other than the TV sitcom, because movies were written by a single writer who then got rewritten by ten other writers. Yeah, you know, yeah. Working, working all working against each other. That's that's ah uh, man, I, I I don't know. I I love I love hearing uh, this from two different perspectives. Also, I love hearing it from two entirely different energies. You and Phil have totally different energies as human beings, and so I get these different perspectives, and I'm hearing different things, and you both talking about it. I, I'd like to know, the two of you, is there a specific element of writing, a spe specific ele element of acting or comedy or anything, the first thing that made you and Phil Proctor click, since you're the only two I've ever spoken? Well, I think it was on that first radio program that, that we did with uh, uh, Phil, mm -hmm. uh, with Peter, the first Radio Free Oz show. Mm -hmm. um, I, at the very beginning, we called Phil, he's the guy that falls off the end of the couch. Oh, Phil Proctor, he's the guy who always looks in the back of the couch and finds money. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. there was just something innately funny always about Phil, as well as his, you know, his skills and all of that. But there was sure. just something really funny about him. I was the I was the poet. I was the serious guy, you know, uh, and in that way, uh, we have that contrast. But on the other hand, you know, we can sit down and write uh, a piece together. Uh, we wrote the beginning of the giant rat of Sumatra because mm -hmm. Peter and Phil didn't show up. And we said, well, <laughs> we're like, let's just start writing. You know, <laughs> Phil was, <clears throat> Phil was always so funny. Phil, Phil could be on the phone to his agent through that entire writing session. But see, I use the expression writing session because that, mm -hmm. that's what we, that's what was in my calendar, a writing session. We sat down and we wrote and there, there was an end result to that all, always, uh, because the we didn't write the radio shows to, together. What mm. we wrote, we wrote separately. Okay. Um, and yes, you're you're right about it. Sure, there's a different energy. Uh, uh, Phil is a is a leprechaun. He's uh, he's he's a, a little guy in the sense that he has small person energy, mm -hmm. uh, bigger than life energy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he's just naturally funny. I I I love him as a brother and. And uh, uh, have we ever had our difficulties? Sure, we have. They, my the, my three brothers were very hard to get along with sometimes, <laughs> uh, together and separately. <laughs> but you know, all all of that basically is uh, is is gone. And we sat down and we sat down at the Library of Congress to do this little piece that that we copped from the four guys writing it and made two guys. Uh, it was like we've been doing this all our lives, which is kind of what we have been. Yeah. Do you, 
I will just say, describing him as the guy who finds the change in the couch uh, in the couch is maybe the perfect description of him because also he's literally been on my couch here a million times interviewing and there's a bit every time he'll do a bit it doesn't matter two or three bits per interview at least and i can't then i'm entirely just off-roaded i i, I can't think straight anymore because it's always <laughs> oh a beautiful bit and I, ha I find myself having to get back on track and not knowing how usually taylor is the one who helps by the way i'll just point that out taylor's a brilliant well, get you back on track guy. <laughs> oh taylor is couldn't do without taylor right. but think how it is to those two energies Mm -hmm. Phil's at nine. Yeah. Okay. Now add in Pete's, who was not manic depressive, but surely bipolar. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And uh, no, not manic. Yeah, bipolar. Just bipolar. And uh, Austin, who could be as withdrawn as as any person could possibly be, just not there. Yeah. Uh, or else so there and so quote, prepared, so ready to give, you know, that it's like, you know, oh, I guess I'll have to come with some stuff again tomorrow, boy. You know, and I can remember that happening and because you would bring things in, you know, yeah. especially at the start of writing something. How do you do that? Came in with the character. Mm -hmm. Phil a Proctor came in with uh, uh, Hire Friends, the, the character of... Uh, the, the car salesman. Mm -hmm. If you came in with this, Peter came in with a piece that he'd written that was so funny. We threw out the beginning of the album and put it at the beginning. Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, all those kinds of things would happen. That's why I say that that you, you, you never let go of the product until it was finally mixed down at the very end of it, because it was always other things you could do. Um, uh, and, and that's part of that improv to not let go, not let go of it, but not make it perfect. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah, I mean, that's the hardest thing. Yeah. Per, as you know, the perfection being the enemy of the good, but holy cow, there's also just more packed into your records than any other comedy group that I can think of. I was a, as a kid, I was a big fan. Uh, the stuff that I grew up listening to at the beginning was like, you know, Cheech and Chong. And I didn't smoke weed. I didn't know what really understand what weed was. I didn't get half the jokes they were making. I'm like, wow. Uh, the one thing that stuck with me is like, this is just so well mixed and so brilliantly. And then you find out later that Lou Adler is probably half the reason that it sounds as good as it does and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then Taylor, I mean, I'm introduced to you guys before Taylor, but then Taylor helps me appreciate that it's not just that, that there you know it seems as though back here in the back of my head a character just said something and now I have to listen to it 10 more times and <clears throat> you get your money's worth it, it's it's never one album I don't think there's one album of yours that is one album you know based on the amount of listens you have to get to get through it to get it you know to understand what's actually going on it's yeah a solid 10 listens per record somebody quoted on Facebook today because people will just quote lines, you know? Yeah. And one of them was, I've been shooting reds and yellows all day. <laughs> and I, I wrote back and I said, that line is so complicated on mm -hmm. so many levels. It's virtually the United States foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, how do you footnote? These two Mexicans from Los Angeles who mm. are who are in, in 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 Korea, but they're really in Vietnam, really. Mm. I mean, it's just too just that's the kind of richness that that made me enjoy what we were doing. That yeah. that line could come out 
just abstractly, as it probably did, out of either Austin's or, or, or Proctor's uh, mouth. Um, uh, and so you wrote it down. That would, mm-hmm. We fixed that. Okay, we'll put that in for sure. All made up, all yeah, yeah. improv on the moment mm-hmm. of, of time. So yeah. that's what that that's what the advantage of having the studio time to yeah. be able to do that uh, was. That was going to be my next question because there are just every once in a while there's the air of this just couldn't be improvised. There's too much, you know. Somebody cracks a little bit. There's a laugh. There's a little bit of a, uh, that energy. Okay, so that may, that does make sense that there could be entire bits where you're just like, no, let's 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 work this out on the tape, which is phenomenal. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I love hearing that. Um, uh, this has been a, a treasure, a pleasure. All the words that rhyme with that, um, and an honor to speak with you. I really, really appreciate speaking with you, David. This is well, it's about time, Jason, that we did agreed. this. I mean, because uh, Taylor's been trying to get us together for a long, a, a long while. <laughs> you, and uh, it is fun, and this is a great time to talk. And I'm feeling uh, like I know, I know more now than I did the last time I went through this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that everybody I'm talking to, smart, mm-hmm. knows what's going on, knows what they're doing. It's not like a t- the TV morning show <laughs> or the poor the poor jock at the radio station that, you know, there's the one really enthusiastic guy that set up your show in the student <laughs> union, but then the guy who's on the air, you know, he likes metal, and, you know, I mean, so thank you very much. I'm I'm here. I'm available. I'm still uh, reasonably uh, alive and healthy. Well, shoot. My next and, question uh, here was, what's your favorite Metallica song? Damn it. Okay, I'm going to throw that one <laughs> oh, out. Oh, uh, I'm terribly <laughs> sorry about that. Um, please tell people about the record, where they can find it, and what's on it. What's it all about? All right. The record is Dope Humor of the 70s. It is a 2LP collection of shortcuts, shorter cuts that have been chosen from our three radio shows, the Firesign Theater Radio Hour Hour, Let's Eat, and Dear Friends that we did right at the turn of 1970, right through that era when it was free radio. So these are for you, dear friends. They are fun to play. You not only get uh, 46, is it 46, 36, 20? You get a lot of cuts on these two albums, but then you also get an equal amount of stuff, if not more, on a digital download. Plus there's a wonderful essay uh, by Taylor Jessen. Plus there's four, count them, four 12-inch LP sides to look at, and they're awfully beautiful our old notes uh it's just a lot of fun to have a record and it's out there from stand up exclamation point records uh for the records it's a limited edition i think the edition is 500 and there i don't think will be any more there is a download version but hey you want the 12 by 12 don't you you do do. come on so it's right out there Thanks, Jason. Thank you so, so much, everybody. Thank you for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. 
Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Undress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!